Chapter Five. Esplin Nine Four Six Six. My name is Esplin Nine Four Six Six. I come from no regular yerk pool. I was born from the decaying bodies of my tripartite parents, along with several hundred brothers and sisters, aboard ship, and one twin, naturally, as you know from the double number designation. I have never lived on the home world. I was born in a sterile titanium alloy tank beneath the warmth of a portable condrona. It was all I knew. Older Yorks spoke of the pools of home, of their smells and temperatures, of their size and spaciousness, of their traditions that stretched back for hundreds of generations. My pool was simple and crude. It had been constructed using the host bodies of Geds. Geds are imperfect hosts. Even so, I wished we had more of them, but there were no host bodies available, not on this spacecraft. So we lived in our pool, as simple yurks must, and I would have lived happily enough. But then came the day when it was my turn to take training. There were a certain number of geds, often old or disabled in some way, that we used as training hosts. We were given fifteen minutes to enter the host body. Take it, and then release the host body and leave. Fifteen minutes. It was all the time allowed, with so many untrained yurks and so few available hosts. We lined up in the pool six at a time. I was fourth in line. I waited impatiently, afraid. I admit it, afraid. You hear stories about what it's like, about the hallucinatory sensory input. About the strange sensations of having another mind under your control, about the extension of your own body through unfamiliar limbs, but you don't know till you do it. When it was my turn, the ged's head was thrust underneath the surface of the pool. My sonar found the head quite easily, of course, and I'd been taught how to pinpoint the opening in the head by extending two palps. It was quite a small entryway. I had to squeeze myself down and work my way slowly inside the ear canal. From there on, it was all by feel. My sonar didn't work, of course, and the smells encountered were unfamiliar, useless. But then, after what seemed far too long a time, my palps encountered a surface alive with electricity. The brain. I could feel the activity, the snapping neurons, the arcs of microvoltage between synapses. I had to flatten myself all the way. My palps sought for trenches, gaps, openings around the brain, and I found them. I pushed my body down inside each wrinkle of the brain, just as I'd been taught to do. And slowly at first, then faster and faster, I began to make contact. I felt the neurons connecting to me. Only someone who has done it can understand. It was. It was beyond description. Suddenly, I was not just myself; I was something much larger. Where my body ended, a second body began, so that very soon I forgot my own body entirely. I had arms many times longer than myself. They ended in three-fingered hands that could actually move objects, lift them, turn them over, set them down in different ways. I had legs that lifted my new body up high. I could move through the air. 
Oh, how can I explain it? The power, the joy, the feeling that I had suddenly grown huge, vast, powerful. No one told me it would be so wonderful. And then I felt inside the brain a place I had not been, a place untouched by my control. I opened that part of the brain, and in doing so, I opened the Ged's eyes. For a long, frozen moment of disbelief, I did not know what was happening. I didn't understand what my brain was receiving. How could I? How could any Yurk who has not had a host? Sight! Objects, not felt, not smelled, not reflected on sonar, but seen! It was like a sonar image, but oh, so much more. So much! The data assaulted my brain. I reeled, overwhelmed, unable to understand or accept. I looked through the Ged's eyes. I used the Ged's own brain to filter and interpret the eerie, insane input. And then, slowly, I understood. I was looking at other Ged's. I was looking around at the inside of the spacecraft. I was looking down at my own pool. So small it was. So dark. So insignificant. I saw movement within the pool and caught a flash of something gray and wet. I had never before seen one of my own people. I felt like some super being, like I was no longer a yerk at all. I could see, and in a flash, I knew that this one sense was more powerful than every other sense combined. Sight plus powerful limbs. It was inconceivable. And then, my time was up. I had to leave the Ged host and return to the pool. Afterward, I communicated with my friends and siblings. Many of them found the whole experience terrifying, sickening. Awful. Not me. From that moment on, I swore that I would do whatever it took, pay any price, to have eyes again. There were more than a quarter million of us on the two transport ships. A quarter million of us and so few hosts. Only the most fit, the most useful, would be given hosts. I would be the most fit. I would be the most useful. The ship we were in was one we had taken from the Andalites some years earlier. We were using it to travel the galaxy in search of suitable hosts. Most Yurks were not interested in the ship, not even interested in the link we'd managed to create that allowed us to access the Andalite ship's central computer. A computer is a machine made of manipulated matter that stores information, like a flawless memory. Those who cared about the computer were the scientists and technicians. They learned all they could about Andalite science. I would never be a scientist. I knew I didn't have that kind of mind. But perhaps there was something else I could learn from the Andalite computer. Something that would make me fit for a host. I searched the databanks hungrily, and one day I realized I'd found my true calling. I came across an old Andalite saying in the computer files. Know your friends well. Know your enemies better. The Andalites were our enemy now. Yes, know your enemy. That 
was my calling. That was the way to gaining my own host. I would learn all the computer held about the magnificent, powerful creatures called Andalites. Someday, we would face the Andalites in battle. Then, I would be needed. Chapter 6 Aldria How are you getting along with your young friend? My father asked as we galloped across the grass together, side by side. Doc? Oh, fine, I said. I noticed that you are not making regular data entries. You did for the first three months. Then you stopped. I shrugged. I fell out of the habit, father. Well, I understand that Doc is almost a friend to you, Aldria. But we have a mission here. We are supposed to be learning about the Hork-Bajir. Actually, father, I thought privately. We are supposed to be watching out for any possible Yurk interest in this planet. I didn't say that, of course. My father chose to pretend this was some kind of scientific mission. Even now, he didn't want to accept the fact that the Yurks were marauding around the galaxy. He still preferred to think that it was just the Yurks who had stolen the ships who were guilty. He clung to the belief that the main population of Yurks were in favor of peace with Andalites. We would get transmissions from the homeworld, news that the Yurks had attacked a moon colonized by Skritna and taken additional ships and weapons, news that the Yurks had attacked and seized a Hajabran colony ship. They had attempted to infest the Hajabrans, but had failed because Hajabran brains are not centralized, but spread in small nodes throughout their bodies. They had left the Hajabrans to die. Their ship's life support had been knocked out in the attack. An Andalite courier had come across the ship, drifting, with 8,000 Hajabrans frozen in the vacuum of space. News that a group of Angachik minstrels had been taken and successfully infested. Fortunately for the Angachik race, they'd long ago abandoned their planet. They are entirely a nomadic, space-faring race now. The Yurks would have to hunt down literally millions of Ongachik ships spread in every direction through the galaxy. The Ongachik race would survive. But my father kept insisting the Yurks on their homeworld had been peaceful these years since the attack that destroyed his honor. I didn't point out that the Yurks on the homeworld had no choice. An Andalite fleet was parked in orbit above them, ready to shred anything that tried to come or go in the system. I am learning about the Hork Bashir, I said. But I feel like a spy or something, transcribing it all into the computers. My father turned his nearest stuck eye toward me and made a small smile. I'm proud that you wish to keep Doc Hummy's trust, he said. But after all, he is Hork Bashir, not Endelite. I don't think they would even understand the concept of trust or of spying as you call it. Doc understands more than you might think, I said. More every day, I added silently. We turned and headed back toward the scoop. It was uphill heading back. I ran slowly enough for my father to keep up. The Hort Bashir I've encountered barely function at the level of a small child, 
my father said sadly. The Yurks were so fascinating, highly intelligent, yet so limited physically. It's as if the Hortbegir are the exact opposite. Physically impressive. Mentally, well, simple. I think Doc Hami is different, I said. He can read now, and write, and he can do basic math. He's up to calculus. I think he may be capable of n-dimensional geometry. My father frowned. Your mother has studied the intellectual capacity of Hork Bajir. I assure you, they are not capable of reading, not more than recognizing one or two words, and certainly no math beyond what they need to keep track of family members. I sighed. I'd been through this before. My parents both assumed I was just exaggerating. Barofin believed me, but he didn't care. Barofin had become depressed by the Hortbegir planet. There were no other Endolites to recreate with. And, of course, Endolites cannot climb trees. Barofin spent his days near the scoop, playing combat games with the computer. My father wasn't much better. He'd given up trying to communicate with the Hortbegir. They simply had nothing to say that interested him. My mother was happier, of course. She would go off and study the different trees and the various other animal species. With my father withdrawn, my mother busy, my brother depressed and indifferent, I was left to myself. So I spent time with Doc, and we explored the valley together. I had learned to walk on a slant, coping with the slope of the valley. But Doc, like all hork spent most of his time in the trees. hork are able to run on branches and leap through the air to the next tree. It's as fast as running along the ground, and easier when the ground is always at a slant. One day we were going along this way, me on the ground, my muscles aching from coping with the slope and Doc leaping easily through the trees, when I saw it. Doc, what is that animal? The small, feathered one. It's called a chadu. It was no more than two feet long and covered in deep blue feathers. It had four short legs and two elongated arms ending in claws. It moved by racing along branches and then leaping through the air, much as Doc did. But the Chadu had skin flaps that caught the air like an airfoil, so that it could glide. Would you like me to bring it to you, Aldria? I hesitated. What I was thinking of doing was wrong. My parents would be furious if they found out. If they found out. Yes, can you catch it? Of course. Doc said with a laugh. He used his wrist blade to make a horizontal slash in the tree bark. A pale green-yellow liquid oozed from the gash. He collected some of this on his claw tip and held it out to the chadu. The little blue creature came running. Doc gathered it up carefully and dropped the twenty feet to the ground. Here it is, he said, holding it out to me. Doc, do you understand the idea of a secret? I have learned much from you, Aldria, but I have not learned this. A secret is something you know that you never tell anyone else, 
so that if I tell you something, only you and I will ever know it. He looked troubled. What is its purpose? I sighed. Doc had come an amazing way in a very short time. His ability to speak was incredibly improved, for example. And now he fully understood the concept of planets, stars, and galaxies. But he was still hork and I was still Andalite. Trust me, I said, and never tell anyone what you are about to see. I placed my hands on the jadu, and I began to acquire the animal's DNA. Chapter 7 Aldria I am going to change now, I said. It may seem frightening, but it isn't magic. It is a new technology we have developed. Technology. Science. Spacecraft and computers. Doc said. Yes, like all those things. But different, too. My parents don't even know I have this technology. They don't know that I've used the Escafil device. This is a secret, Doc said. Yes. Doc, I am going to become a Chadu. He had no answer to that. I wasn't surprised. The morphing technology is so new that there are even Andalites who doubt its safety or usefulness. Fortunately, I had a friend back on the home world whose mother was one of the designers of the Escafil device. She had shown it to me. I'd used it. Just don't be afraid. Trust me. I began to morph the Chadu. It was only the second time I'd morphed. So as much as I was telling Doc not to be afraid, I was telling myself, too. I began to shrink. My legs grew shorter, more stunted. My belly sagged toward the ground. My tail seemed to simply wither, as if it were very old and dead and drying up at hyperspeed. Doc jumped back, eyes wide. Don't be afraid, I told us both. It won't take long. My stock eyes darkened and disappeared. An opening formed like a cut or sore in the front of my face. Tiny red teeth sprouted. My fur grew shaggier, longer. Hundreds of individual hairs twined together to form feathers. I was on the ground now. My legs were stumps. My arms had grown stronger and longer, relative to the rest of my body. Skin flaps extended down my sides, stretched between my back leg and foreleg. I was no longer Andalite. I was Chadu. I looked out through Chadu eyes. Just two, and only able to see in one direction. It made me feel blind. But they were good eyes, despite there being only two. They saw brilliant color and even more brilliant lines and shapes. They were eyes adapted for spotting handholds while gliding through the air. I found the mouth the strangest thing. It felt so wrong, having this gaping hole in the front of my face. It's silly, but I felt like it was a wound. The Chadu's brain and instinct were gentle enough. This was not an environment with predators. The Chadu was almost tame. 
It's still me, Doc, I said. You have become a Chadu, he said. Yes, but my mind is still the same. I'm still Aldria, and in a little while, I will change back. But first, I want to know what it's like in your world, up in the trees. I had seen some of the valley from the ever-slented ground, but now I saw the true hork world. I raced for the trunk of the nearest tree. My four stubby legs each ended in a sharp little claw, and these claws propelled me up the trunk at a shocking speed. Small as I was, and as large as the tree was, the rough bark looked more like a desert plain from the untouched wilds on my own world. I was moving vertically, straight up. I saw an endless expanse ahead of me. To my left and right, I saw what might have been the curvature of a small moon or asteroid. The vertical surface curved away, out of sight. Far ahead of me, upward, that is, I saw what seemed like an entire new tree. It was a branch, perpendicular to me. Massive, huge, surging up out of the gently curved bark plane. Doc Hami kept pace, just behind me. When I paused to look back, I became aware of how high up I was, how I was hanging from a vertical surface. If I had let go, I'd have fallen straight down onto Doc. I paused at the base of the branch. Perspective was bizarre. Up was forward. Down was back. Left and right were emptiness. You really are Aldria. Yes, Doc. Then come. I will show you my world. We raced up the tree with Doc in the lead. A hundred feet. Two hundred feet. Three hundred feet. The valley wall was a hundred feet away now, but always still there. Higher and higher we went, and yet there remained this bizarre fact that the ground was not so much below us as it was beside us. In the other direction, however, away from the valley wall, there were only trees. Follow me, Doc cried. He swung easily from the trunk onto a massive branch that grew toward the valley center. My little chadu legs scrambled to keep up. I raced along the branch. Now I was far, far above the ground. Because while it sloped up behind us, it sloped down before us. With each few dozen steps along the branch, I was another ten feet above the ground. I was beginning to get a glimpse past the trees out into clear air, but we had only begun our wild climb. We reached the end of the branch. It was so narrow now that I had to hold on by wrapping my stubby legs around and beneath the branch. See that treetop? Doc asked, pointing. We go that way. How? You are a Chadu, yes? The Chadu knows. And with that, Doc squatted low, coiling his powerful leg muscles, and leapt into space. He bounced the branch. Down ten feet. Up ten. Down twenty feet. Up twenty. Down thirty, and up. At the top of the arc, he leapt. He soared and fell, and with a wild grab of his right claw, snagged the top of the next tree. One clawed hand wrapped around the crown of the tree, and he swung around it, not once, 
but twice, three times, four times. The crown bent way over from his weight, but it did not break. It was the most thrilling thing I'd seen before or since. The wild glee of the young hork swinging madly, five hundred feet above the sloping ground. Swinging and laughing. And then, my hearts, I mean my heart, because the Chadu only has one, stopped. Doc released and fell from sight. I raced to the end of the branch, trusting the Chadu to know what to do. It did. I ran, simply ran, no jumping, no leaping, straight off the end of the branch, ran straight into the air. My four feet pushed out, stretching the skin flaps. I felt the wind beneath me, felt it ruffle up into my feathers, felt it fill the skin flaps. I had lift. I was not merely falling. I could turn my blunt head and change direction. I could raise or lower a leg and change direction even more quickly. I glided along a curved path toward the treetop that still quivered from snapping back. My thin, strong arms reached and grabbed the tree crown. I swung once around, and down below me, on yet another tree branch, I saw Doc. He was looking up and grinning, a thing hork do with their mouths. I released and glided down to him. From then on, it was a game. Doc led the way, and I followed. A wild, insane romp, leaping across the void, snatching branches from midair, scampering, leaping again. But always, Doc led the way, tree to tree, along a path he knew as well as I know my own meadow, back on the home world. The trees were changing. The bark became thicker. The treetops higher and higher. At last, we reached a tree that made every other tree look like a bush. From the base of its downhill side to the crown, it was 2,119 feet high. My mother measured it for me days later. I didn't tell her why. It was almost half a mile tall. That is the tribe tree, Doc said. The tree of my people. That is where the elders meet. I peered at the tree and could see, here and there, platforms, hundreds, thousands of feet up. There were hork there, milling around. The more I looked, the more platforms I saw, and the more elaborate they were. Up and up, far over our heads, the platforms twined around the tribe tree. There were hundreds of hork in the tree, not stripping the bark, but stacking bark carried in by a steady stream of hork Come, Doc said. We raced and leapt, and soon I was clinging to the bark of the tribe tree itself, clinging and climbing, up and up. Remember, don't tell your fellow hork who and what I am, I said. They would not understand if I told them, Doc said simply. We climbed forever. We climbed till I could not imagine that there was still more tree above us. We passed platforms where hork ground up bark, where they cut bark into strips, where they bundled bark with string vines. And there were other platforms where hork simply sat and seemed to be telling stories, 
almost like classrooms, I realized. Slowly, we emerged from the surrounding trees. We climbed till I could see clearly out over the void, across to the far side of the valley. We climbed till I could glimpse the lip of the valley behind us. Down below, what seemed a million miles below, I saw the toxic blue at the very bottom of the valley, what the Hork-Bashir call Father Deep. There was a narrow platform built at the very top of the tribe tree. I went up onto it. I've been in Morph for a long time, I said. I have to change back for a while. I began to demorph, and a few minutes later, I stood on my own four hooves, where no Andalite could ever possibly belong. With my own proper Andalite eyes, I could see in every direction at once. I saw the sheer valley wall behind, the endless trees spreading left and right, the far side of the valley, many miles away. The sky, not as red and gold as it should have been, spread above us, dwarfing the valley. And down below, so far down that I felt nauseated by the drop, I saw a slice of the terrifying deep. I don't know why, but the deep drew my gaze, even more than the stunning, magnificent vista all around me. I looked down at the deep. I looked away and then back down. Near the edge, the trees disappeared, replaced by eerily colored plants in twisted shapes. Doc, what is in the deep? He looked at me as if I'd been reading his mind. I don't know, he admitted. I only know what my people say. What do your people say is in the deep? Terror, he said simply. They say that terror is in the deep. Hello, Phantomorphs, and thank you for listening to another episode of Audiomorphs, the Animorphs auditory experience. As always, this is your host, Daniel. Uh, Thanks for listening. Sorry that this came out a little late. I'm a little burnt out this week. Um, I don't know. Just uh, kind of in a low period, but hopefully we'll bounce back from it soon. Um, No interruption to the schedule as far as I know. Uh, But if there are, you be sure to check out that Twitter, at Audiomorphs. Uh, See that segue? There it is. Um, You can also reach me uh, on a bunch of other platforms, such as Gmail, audiomorphscast at gmail.com, Tumblr, audiomorphscast.tumblr.com, and my website, theapocalypse.com. That's the apocalypse, like apocalypse, but with a D in the middle. Uh, All that other stuff, too. Apple Podcast reviews, you get it, you get it. Um, I'm just going to cut out here a little early. So everyone have a great night, and I will see you all next week. My name is Daniel, and I believe one day the Andalites will come. Until then, we fight. We fight.